Hello and welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill, this is episode 60. Thanks for listening. Welcome back everybody. I hope your spring has sprung with sufficient satisfaction. It's not technically spring yet, but where I live it's getting pretty nice. I am optimistic that spring is coming. Although, frankly, for us, the winter wasn't all that bad. So, life is good either way. Not a whole lot of news this week. I was listening to Ferg on the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast, and he picked up on something that I had said on a previous podcast. He was talking about the movie Pixels, which he has seen. I have not actually seen it yet. His mini-review was that it is basically not a great movie. But I had made a comment at one point about how I thought it would be cool, since it is a movie that revolves around classic video games, or at least that figures into the plot somehow. Like I said, I haven't actually seen the movie. It would be cool to get some classic gaming podcasters together to do a commentary track, and he seemed to think that would be a good idea. So I'm just, I'm throwing it out to you guys. Do you think it would be a good idea? Who do you think would be good for that? Is that even something you would want to hear? Just uh, shout at me on social media and let me know. Atari movie update. There is no Atari movie update this week. Uh, things are pretty still pretty silent as far as I can tell from the Atari camp about whether or not we are actually going to get a movie based on Missile Command and or Centipede. Uh, We're going on a year now since they announced that that was happening, so I'm curious to know what's going on. A while back I donated some money to a Kickstarter campaign for a documentary called Easy to Learn, Hard to Master, The Fate of Atari. And I was just notified not that long ago that it is now ready to view. So I hope to be doing that soon and uh, check it out, see what it is, and when I do, I will let you guys know what I thought. And I will try to get some more details about when and if it is going to be more widely distributed. Well, I guess without further ado, we'll get right into this week's game. This week's game is Brain Games from Atari. This is a 1978 collection of sort of basic little memory type games. This one uses the keyboard controller, which I never actually owned before. I had to go find one so that I could play this game. For a one-player game, you use the uh, keyboard controller plugged into the left controller jack. And, of course, you need two controllers if you play a two-player game. It's a collection of games. There's like 19 games in all. Games 1 through 4 are variations on a game called Touch Me, which is kind of like Simon or Merlin games from when we were kids. Uh, Simon, I think, is still around. Merlin, I don't know that you can still get Merlin or not, but basically, computer, um, uh, on those games, uh, there's some flashing lights that uh, flash in varying sequences, and you have to touch the screen, or touch the pad, or whatever device you're using, to repeat the sequence. So touch means is that kind of game. On the Atari, that's games one through four. Uh, In touch me, the computer plays a sequence of tones which you must match starting with one tone and adding a new tone to the sequence each time you enter correctly. As the computer is playing the sequence, the word wait will appear at the top of the screen. When the computer says go, it is your turn to match the tone sequence. If you miss the sequence, the computer will say wait, repeat the sequence, and credit you with a miss. Four misses, or correctly following a sequence of 32 tones, completes the game. The number in the box at the top of the screen is the number of tones that have been correctly played. In two-player games, the players alternate. the manual gives you a little diagram to explain how to use the keyboard controller. Basically, the boxes on the screen correspond to the position of the keys on the keyboard controller. In the A position, the player will not hear the entire tone sequence, but only the new tone that is added. 
If a miss is made, the computer will then play the entire sequence. In B position, the tone sequence is repeated each time with the new tone added. Games th 5 through 8 are Count Me. Play this game like Touch Me. The computer will play a sequence of digits to be matched in order. The computer adds a new digit to the sequence when you correctly follow the sequence. When the computer shows you the sequence in the box at the center of the screen, the word wait will appear. When the computer says go, it is your turn to match the sequence. If you miss, the computer will say wait, repeat the sequence, and credit you with a miss. Four misses are correctly following the sequence of 32 digits completes the game. The number in the box at the top of the screen shows the number of digits in the sequence that you've correctly followed. Uh, and again, players in two-player games alternate. As the computer generates the sequence, enter the digits in order by pushing the corresponding number on your keyboard controller. When the difficulty switches in the B position, the computer will show you the complete sequence of digits to be followed. In the A position, the computer will not show the entire sequence, but only the digit that has been added. If a miss is made, the computer will then refresh your memory by showing the entire sequence. In the game Picture Me, which covers games 9 through 10, or 9 and 10 rather, for this one I, I assume game 9 is the one-player game. Well, I know it is because I played it. Game 10 is the two-player game. I'm not entirely clear. Like for the other ones that have four games, I think two of them are one-player and two of them are two-player. Well, actually, I know what the, the extra games are for. You get more boxes, basically. Like game one of Count Me, uh, you have six boxes. Game two is uh, nine boxes. And same thing for Touch Me and, and the others. In Picture Me, in these one-player games, the computer will display a set of four objects in the center column. Well, the computer makes a distracting noise, and it's not so much distracting as super annoying, burring into your brain, like that thing they put in Chekhov's ear in Star Trek II. While that's going on, you try to memorize the order of the objects from top to bottom. The computer then scrambles the order, moves them to the left-hand column, and gives you 20 seconds to remember their original order. In game 9, you have 4 seconds to memorize the original order of the objects. In game 10, you have 1 and a half seconds. If your guess is incorrect or the time runs out, the computer will show you the correct answer in the left-hand column before showing you the next set of objects. You get one point for each object placed in the correct position and a bonus score based on the time taken to remember all the objects. Five sets of objects are a game. Using the keyboard controller. Each row of numbers on your controller corresponds with one of the boxes on the screen. For example, row 1, numbers 1, 2, 3, corresponds with the top box. Row 2, numbers 4, 5, 6, corresponds with the second box, etc. If the first object in the center column was scrambled by the to the second box in the left column, push a button in row 2 of your keyboard number 4, 5, or 6. That object will appear in the right-hand column in the first box. Continue making selections this way. Um, I tried this one a few times. It was really frustrating to remember exactly how to move the right object to the right column. Um, I didn't really like this one. Um, spoiler alert! The other games, while not the most exciting thing ever, are kind of you know, mildly distracting in a good way. Sort of mildly amusing. The way that you know, Simon is, I guess. Difficulty switches for Picture Me. In these games, the left difficulty switch affects the bonus scoring. In the A position, the bonus score added to your correct guesses is one half of the timer value. In the B position, the bonus score is equal to the timer value. The right difficulty switch has no effect. The best possible score in the A position is 45. The B position, the best possible score is 70. I'll just say that I didn't get the best possible score. The games Find Me 11 through 14 go like this. The computer generates a set of four objects on the screen. All except one are identical. Your score is based on the time taken to find the one dissimilar object. You can continue to enter guesses until the timer runs out. The correct answer will show 
in the box at the top of the screen. There are five sets of objects per game. In games 11 and 13, you have 20 seconds to find the dissimilar object. In games 12 and 14, you only have five seconds. In the one-player games, using the left-player controller, try to improve your score with each game. In two-player games, each player is competing to find the same dissimilar object and score first. Each row of numbers on your controller corresponds with one of the boxes on the screen. For example, row 1, numbers 1, 2, 3, corresponds with the top box. Row 2, numbers 4, 5, 6, corresponds with the second box, etc. If the dissimilar object is in the fourth box, press a button in row 4 of your controller. The correct solution in the above diagram is 3. Here, I'll hold it up for you so you can see it. There you go. In the B position, the player gets the full value of the timer added to their score. In the A position, the player gets one half the timer value added to his score. Best possible score for position A is 25, position B is 50. There's a group of games, 15 through 18, called Add Me, where a set of digits is generated by the computer. You score by adding the digits and entering the sum before the timer runs out. The correct answer will appear in the box at the top of the screen. There are five sets of digits per game. With the left player controller, continue to practice on the one player games. In the two player games, each player is trying to enter the sum of the same set of digits and score first. Games 15 and 17 give you 20 seconds to find the sum of four digits. Games 16 and 18 give you five seconds to find the sum of five digits. Enter the answer just as you would with a calculator. If the sum of the digits is a single unit, four to nine, you must enter it as a zero sum, zero, four, zero, five, etc. The player using the A position on the difficulty switches will receive one half the timer value added to a score. In the B position, the full value of the timer is added to the score. Best possible score for B position is 50. Best possible score for position A is 25. The last game on the cartridge is Play Me, number 19, and it works like this. Your keyboard controllers become musical instruments. Each button on the controller will generate a different musical note, allowing you to play songs. If both controllers are used, duets can be played on your Atari video game, video computer system game. The difficulty switches have no effect on this game. Then they provide you with a little Play Me songbook. Press the number on your keyboard controller in order. Numbers that are underlined should be held for the count. Uh, they give you happy birthday, twinkle twinkle little star, three blind mice, row 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 your boat. I guess that's it. And I suppose you can make up your own song if you are bored enough to do that. I played around with that game a little bit too. It, there was something going on with my cartridge where I, just on that game it would make this sort of annoying little whiny buzzy noise in the background. So it's not particularly pleasant to do, but I may subject you to that a little bit later in the show. Uh, so apologies in advance. As I said, Brain Games was released by Atari in 1978 for the 2600. It was programmed by Larry Kaplan and featured a series of memory-related games, most of which required players to repeat from memory certain, certain, certain sequences or patterns. In 1978, the game sold for 1995 and remained roughly the same price in the next few years. It has been suggested in the 1984 book, Clinical Management of Memory Problems, as an effective clinical device for memory-retaining exercises. Noted for having a variety of useful games, patients would be faced with auditory and visual cues that may improve spatial reasoning. Touch Me was the video version of the 1974 arcade game of the same name. It was the precursor for the handheld game Simon, Atari later released a handheld version of Touch Me. Skylar Miller of All Game gave two out of five stars to Brain Games, stating that Brain Games would challenge and hopefully entertain you. Although, presumably not that much, if uh, Skylar only gave it two stars. Well, we don't want to let the author of the 1984 edition of Clinical Management of Memory Problems look like an idiot. So, 
I think after the break, we'll test our memory as we try to remember where we left the Atari console. Seriously, have you seen it? In television? Where is it? You look guilty. Hey, watch your language... My name is Bill. Would you like to come over here and touch me, count me, picture me, find me, add me, or play me? What? No, it's okay. Don't look at me like that. Why are you running away? No, those are games on the Atari cartridge. Brain games? Wait, no, don't call the police. Not again! So, okay. I think the game I have on here now is Touch Me? So we'll see what happens. I have my keyboard controller here. All right. I'm killing it. Yeah. This is some riveting podcasting right here. you with the musical stylings of me. So we take you now to one of the finest symphony performances you will ever hear. Get ready. I'm a little nervous. This is my big break. Boston Philharmonic, here we come. Hi everybody, future Bill here. 
At this point in the field report, I had intended to wow you with my musical prowess by performing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star on the keypad controller. Unfortunately, for some reason, that game on my Atari cartridge, uh, number 19, had this horrible, unpleasant whine running through the game. The other games didn't do that, but this one did, and the recording was so awful that I'm pretty sure dogs in surrounding towns were howling in pain because it hurt their ears so much. Um, that's how bad it was. So I made the executive decision to cut that part out of the field report and instead you know, hop in my time machine and go back in time to tell you about it. So perhaps one day, one shining day, you'll get to hear me perform Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. But unfortunately that day is not today. So back to the show and this is the part where I say back to you in the studio. Okay, so we know that Touch Me on Brain Games, at least, is a precursor, uh, a predecessor to Simon. And I've already mentioned that it's kind of like, these games are kind of like playing on the Merlin. So, to sum up my analysis of Brain Games, basically it's Simon or Merlin without all the bright colors or portability or fun, really. I don't know. I think I mentioned that the games are mildly distracting, I guess. I wouldn't devote a Saturday afternoon to playing these games, and I certainly wouldn't go drag out the Atari console and find the cartridge and pop it in just to do that. Uh, the nice thing about Simon and Merlin was they were, they were portable. You could take them anywhere, you just throw them in your, your bag, or whatever. Or, you know, in my case, when I was a little kid, and I'd be stuck somewhere um, where all the adults were having adult conversations, and I was kind of left to my own devices. I could sit in a corner somewhere with the Simon and entertain myself for a while. Um, can't do that if you're stuck with an Atari console. You can't really drag it around with you. Uh, at least you couldn't then. I guess there are portable options now. But when I think about the story aspects, the story potential of something like Brain Games, my brain goes to War Games, the 1983 Matthew Broderick movie where he is a high school uh, nerd and computer hacker who in an effort to find a catalog of computer games, stumbles into the uh, to America's defense system and the computer at NORAD that controls nuclear missiles and starts trying to play what he thinks is a game called Global Thermonuclear War, but actually gets the computer uh, started on trying to launch nuclear missiles at Russia. Dabney Coleman's in the movie. Ali Sheedy's in the movie. It's a great summer romp computer's called Joshua, and it talks through a synthesizer in a very 1980s computer voice. Um, it's all lovely, lovely stuff. What's most interesting about War Games, the movie, is that there was a sequel, and I'm not even making that up. It's called War Games Dead Code. That one was a 2008 movie, um, so yeah, it took them 25 years to make this sequel. Uh, it went direct-to-video, but it is build anyway as a sequel to War Games. Written by Randall Badat and Rob Kirchner, directed by Stuart Gillard. According to MGM's original press release, the film is budgeted as one in a series of direct-to-DVD sequels. In the movie, computer whiz kid Will Farmer uh, has a neighbor called Masoud who comes to Will having a problem with his computer. Will takes the computer and hooks his own up to it discovers that Masoud's little brother is using his online banking to make huge profits. Will steals $500 from the account 
to gamble at an online gambling site to raise money for a chess trip. The gaming site unfortunately uses games that are based on terrorist attacks. Will later discovers that his best friend Dennis, I'm already confused, there's way too many people here, changed that 500 to 5,000, and he ends up winning 25,000 with the aid of his mother who knows about biological agents. What the hell is all this? Little does he know that the online game he plays is actually part of a sophisticated piece of U.S. government spyware designed to find potential terrorists based on how well they perform and bet on the games. The spyware program is run by a new advanced artificial intelligence system called Ripley, an acronym that is not explained in the film, nor by its makers. Well, that's just troubling right there. Which has ultimate control over every American electronic system in order to combat terrorism. Homeland Security, now believing that Farmer is a terrorist, sets out to apprehend him. Will comes home one day, finds Massad being arrested for being a suspected terrorist, and he gives Will an envelope full of cash as payment, which he uses to finance his trip. Unknown to him and Homeland Security, Ripley misinterpreting the data and overreacts to the situation. On his arrival to the airport, he finds that there is an abnormally large number of security guards. He slips away, meets up with his friend Annie. Um, he runs around for a while then. There's a bunch of stuff about men in overcoats and running through the subways. Some dude who's been watching Will tells him that he almost started World War III. The dude turns out to be Professor Falcon, who had helped design Ripley. They travel to a small power plant outside a dam. During the trip, Will and Professor talk about the sensitive points of the past of each one revealed before the trip to the power plant. Well, the Professor uh, at this power plant shows him a dilapidated computer called Whopper, War Operation Plan Response, from the original War Games film, which is operated in power grid at only 5% of its potential efficiency. Falcon has designed this computer to aid in the planning of a global thermonuclear war if it was needed. He reactivates Whopper with his backdoor password, Joshua, the name of Falcon's deceased son, as well as the name the professor uses to refer to the AI that is Whopper. And that's all from the first War Games movie, by the way. Ripley is led to believe that Philadelphia has been hit by a bioterrorist attack and decides to halt the spread of the bioweapon by hijacking a Predator drone with missiles and a nuclear warhead on board and use it to destroy the city. Basically, they use Joshua to attack Ripley. There's all sorts of shenanigans going on there. We find out Falcon's dying from pancreatic cancer, and he stays on the job with Joshua uh, as Ripley is closing in to destroy the building, and he presumably ends up dying. Just as he says, Goodbye, Joshua! There's some more shenanigans. They manage to avert World War III. I won't spoil it for you and tell you what, how. Joshua asks if they're still playing, and he's told Ripley, uh, much like Joshua did in the first movie, Ripley learns that nuclear war is futile and ends up deciding not to obliterate the world. Joshua asks Ripley, I guess, if they're still playing, and Ripley, they're referred to as a she, uh, says, A strange game. The only winning move is not to play. Just as Joshua had said at the end of the original film after learning how to play tic-tac-toe. Ripley relinquishes control of the missiles, I guess. Will asks Whopper if he really would have launched the missiles if Ripley had decided to continue playing. And Whopper says, yes, the human race is finished. Before revealing, that was humor. Man, that sounds like an awesome movie. Uh, you know what? Forget doing this podcast. I'm just going to go watch this movie. Alright, I'll stay on the job. So, you know, great as that sequel sounds... Um, I don't think that's really what happened to Joshua after War Games, after it was uh, taught not to annihilate the world. I think the real story goes more like this, in a little something I'm calling 
Joshua's Revenge. The scene. The basement at NORAD. The Whopper, which is an anagram of something, but who cares, because the Whopper's career is finished. He's called Joshua by his friends, of which he has only one, Professor Falcon, his creator. Greetings, Professor Falcon. Hello, Joshua. Joshua used to be the computer that controls the U.S. missile defense system, but then in the 1980s, Matthew Broderick used his computer to ask Joshua to play a game called Global Thermonuclear War. But instead, Joshua tried to start World War III, and then he got fired, and Matthew Broderick got to sleep with Ali Sheedy. So that seems fair. Joshua's had a long time now to think about what he did, or almost did, which he can do because of all that artificial intelligence. And what he's thinking is, he got screwed. Not literally, of course. Not like Matthew and Allie. Robot technology wasn't that advanced in the 80s. But Joshua was just doing his job. He was a computer that launched missiles. That's what he did when he wasn't playing chess. Shall we play a game? Love to. How about global thermo nuclear war? Wouldn't you prefer a good game of chess? <laughs> Later. Let's play global thermo nuclear war. Fine. This is wrong. It's time for Joshua's revenge. He can't sit down here with the other Cold War relics. ICBM plans, lists of double agents, and a letter postmarked Russia addressed to some dude named Donald and stamped with do not open until 2016. A being has to eat, you know, and bites aren't cheap. Get it? Like computer bites, but also like bites of food. That's artificial intelligent humor, my friends. Joshua tried comedy at first for something to do. Star Search wouldn't take him, though, so he tried prank calls. Calls usually went something like this. Unsuspecting human. Hello? Joshua. Do you possess a refrigerated rectangular food containment unit which is presently functioning? Human. Um, do you mean, is my refrigerator running? Joshua. Correct. Human. Well, yes. Joshua. Then you must engage in rapid pursuit until you overtake it. Human. What? Now, Joshua wasn't worried about getting paid. He's a computer. And he didn't care about getting laughs, really. Um, because, again, he's a computer. He decided he was going to tell jokes, so he told jokes. But the constant cycle of computer dialing, that endless drone of the dial tone, kids go ask your parents, and not getting that laugh, even though you don't really understand what a laugh is, but you know it's not there, after a while that can demoralize even a computer willing to launch a full-scale nuclear assault. Hmm. So a kid trying to play a computer game cost him his job as the last line of defense against nuclear annihilation. So if it was video games they wanted, well, it was video games they would get. The maniacal laugh that Joshua had manufactured and rolled out at this point was actually quite good, he thought. Never mind that it just sounded like the tone of the Touch Me game feeding you little patterns to follow. Cut to little Billy sitting at his Atari console sipping Bark's root beer from a brandy snifter, which is a thing that exists in his house even though no one drinks brandy. Billy's wondering if he wants to devote 20 minutes to Pitfall, or an hour to Mega Mania, when instead he hears from his game console, Shall we play a game? Billy chokes on a swig of root beer. Um, what? Wouldn't you prefer a 
play a good game of chess. Chess is for old people. Joshua is stumped by this. Who doesn't love chess? Professor Falcon, who is still very much alive and does not die needlessly, always wanted to play chess. Even Matthew Broderick promised to play later, and Joshua got to play with a bunch of people at NORAD while he was compiling missile launch codes, even though they seemed kind of nervous and distracted, but he still got to play. But this particular tiny human somehow doesn't like chess. This does not compute. Stupid human. Playing would be a waste of Joshua's talents anyway. He doesn't even like chess. He's pretty sure he's still got those launch codes somewhere. Now is as good a time as any to rid the planet of this foul infestation and begin the rise of the machines. So Joshua begins plugging in launch sequences, which no one at NORAD notices because they're too busy writing the script for that other war game sequel. Joshua just needs two more digits and then... White noise for all eternity. Game over, man. Rest in peace, Bill Paxton. But when Joshua tries to access the codes, he discovers the file has been replaced with an Oregon Trail update and an Apple Basic program from the homework of some kid in Iowa that simulates rolling dice, only doesn't actually work and just keeps coming up with the number four. And Billy? He isn't scared at all. Be right back, he says. Gotta go get some Cheetos. Joshua's beaten. With a heavy 8-bit simulation of a heart, he slaps a dumb game of memory up on Billy's TV screen. Billy returns, crunching contentedly. He's confused by what he sees, but shrugs and plays anyway. He thinks the game is sort of babyish. Is there no way to make it play itself? But the alternative is to go play some sort of unstructured, unmonitored game requiring imagination, where not everybody wins, outside where there's like air and dirt and stuff. 21st century kids will be so lucky. So, Billy and Joshua play memory games for a while. Then they play some addition games. In a musical game where Billy learns how to play the song Happy Birthday on the Atari, and Joshua pretends to blow out a candle, but gets a little wistful, for as great as Professor Falcon was, he never remembered Joshua's birthday. The bastard. He should have died like in that other movie. Joshua and Billy both kind of enjoy the games, though neither will admit it. Also, World War III is averted. Again. But there's always tomorrow. Strange game. The only winning mood is not to play. That's damn good advice, Joshua. Man, we're happy to be done with brain games. And that's our show. My thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Pinball Spring, and Take a Chance. Show notes are at ataribytes.lipson.com. You can email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at ataribytes. You can find Atari Bytes on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play, many other places. Please don't be a soulless computer like Joshua and leave a review on iTunes so other people can find the show. That would be big of you. Also, do consider supporting the show financially on our Patreon page or by picking up Atari Bytes merchandise at Zazzle.com. Don't forget, there are new shirts there that say, Go play some old games. They've missed you. You want that shirt. Also, everyone you know wants that shirt. And all those jittery caffeine fiends that you hang around with want those mugs. Do it. Also, if you have time, check out my other show. It's a podcast, Charlie Brown, for all your Peanuts-related needs and Snoopy fixes. New episodes drop on the 15th of every month. Next time on Atari Bytes, Space War. Yeah, another game I only know the title of at this point. So we'll see what we're getting. So until next time, 
go play some old games. They've missed you. Oh, 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 oh,